By the time many of us get to a gathering like this one, uh, we find our heads filled with all kinds of questions. My, Mike, my friend Mike Woodruff suggests that about now many of the people that come into a Christmas Eve service are thinking to themselves about things like, did I remember to put the gift receipt in that present for Aunt Tilly? I wonder if Jeff is going to like that gift I got him. Or exactly how much weight have I put on this season? Many of us are thinking about these kinds of things almost helplessly during the holiday season. And I've thought about these questions myself over past weeks. But you know, there is obviously a far more pressing question that ought to fill our hearts and imaginations as we gather here together tonight. The question is, why are we here? (laughs) Why, amidst all of the other occupations of our lives, is it important for us to be right here, uh, thinking and listening and singing as we are? And in this world that has moved on in so many ways from the events that get described in the Bible story we read a moment ago, in the age of iPads and Xboxes, with all the current news of conflicts in Congress or wars around the world, why do we keep going back in time to something that happened in a little town called Bethlehem so very long ago? What difference does that really make? What difference does the birth of that baby really make for me or for you? That is the question that I want to explore with you this evening. I want to invite you to think about that question through the lens of another story that I want to tell you, one that takes place far from the snows we associate with December, but a story that is very close to the heart of Christmas. It was June 1st, 1975, and the sun was shining brightly over the waters of the Gulf of Mexico. One of those jack-up oil rigs that you've probably seen in photographs or in movies was being towed by a tugboat out to its final destination in the midst of the Gulf. During the one summer when I was in college, I, I actually spent three months working on a rig just like that. And I can tell you that before they're put in place and their legs are jacked down to the Gulf floor, they're dangerously top-heavy constructions. And on this particular day, that reality was going to prove absolutely disastrous. Seemingly out of nowhere, a series of freak waves suddenly began to buffet the rig. And in the space of 60 seconds, it completely capsized. It turned upside down entirely and began sinking down, down, until the legs of the rig stuck fast in the mud of the gulf bottom. The crew on the nearby tugboat just watched in abject horror at these events. But what they felt was nothing compared to the six crewmen of that oil rig who were now trapped in the crew house deep underwater with the gulf washing in everywhere around them. 
what do you put your hope in when the water's rising? What do you put your confidence and your trust in when the water of chaos is swirling around you as sooner or later it does for us all? When the job or the loved one perhaps is lost? When your health or a key relationship is sinking fast? When the structures or the securities that you've counted on for a long time have suddenly been turned upside down and your world seems so cold and it seems so dark and confusing, where do you look to find rest and the rescue you need? 18 inches. The water had risen to a point where a air bubble had formed. 18 inches high inside of the depths of that sunken oil rig and the members of the crew had managed to find it. Clinging to greasy pipes and struggling against noxious fumes from the layer of diesel fuel that spread out across the water, the trapped men somehow managed to keep breathing. Their only light came from the luminous dial on one of the crewmen's wristwatch. As minutes wore into hours, they talked with one another, just trying to keep each other awake. They discussed their families. They talked about the mistakes they had made over the journey of their life. They discussed what they'd do differently if they could have now a second chance. They talked about dying and where they would be buried and they prayed together. Some of those guys really prayed for the first time in their rapidly fading lives. And every single one of them would have given anything just to catch a glimpse of the inbreaking of some heavenly light. The people we meet in the original Christmas story were longing for some heavenly light too. They had lived for a very long time in darkness, feeling trapped by history, stuck in a place from which they could not seem to rescue themselves. There was a desperate longing for the light of salvation as Mary and Joseph made their way up to the place where they would be registered for the new tax program. The people of Israel were sinking under the burden of a heavy weight of taxation that the Roman government had placed upon them in order to finance its ever-expanding reach. The oxygen of hope in Israeli society had run so thin that people were increasingly turning against one another. A formerly united people now had turned rapidly against one another. Religious and political parties viciously raged at each other. They turned the hearts of ordinary people against faith and politics alike. The famous peace and prosperity of the, of the Pax Romana, the Roman dream, was declining into divisions and increasing moral decadence. The names of various gods were frequently on the lips of people. But fewer and fewer people knew God. 
for fewer and fewer people, the name of God was something holy, something life-orienting. And more and more, just the word they used when they were cursing or found themselves in a, a desperate pinch. Does any of this sound familiar to you? Do any of these conditions echo and experience you know it all, a world you recognize? Centuries before the prophet Isaiah had spoken to his own people at a similar time of discouragement and division, he'd, he'd promised there was going to come a day when the people who had walked in darkness would see a great light. Upon those who lived in the shadow of death, a light would dawn, promised Isaiah. Because people had forgotten how to come to God anymore. God, the prophet promised, would come to people. He would come to them to reorient their lives, to turn them right side up again. And this will be a sign to you that that time is coming. That that time is upon you, said Isaiah. This will be the clue. A virgin will be with child, he wrote. And she will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. If you have ever longed, to know God as someone with you. If you have ever hungered and hoped for his light to find you or to find our world where we are most trapped and sinking, if you've ever longed in this way for the rescue and presence of God, then, beloved, grab a pipe and pull yourself up to your feet with me. And I mean it literally. Stand up with me right now. And look around at these other people stuck in the room with you, living in the same conditions. And lift your head up in the air and suck in a great big breath of that air for 26 hours they hung on. Five of them in one room, just one other man separated in another room. And that other man had an extraordinary experience. He said that in the midst of the darkness, he felt a presence come close to him. And he knew he knew it was Jesus. And it gave him the courage to hang on. In the other room, the other five were fading by the end of 26 hours. The air pocket was almost gone. The light on the wristwatch out completely. The fumes of the diesel oil poisoning them to sleep. And one of them, Joe Ballard was his name, hung his face into the water. 
wanting to just give in. When he saw something deep down below him. It was just a flicker of light. He thought it was a hallucination. Only the flicker became a steady burn. And it grew brighter. And it grew larger. And it grew closer. Until all of a sudden, the surface of the water in that tiny little cramped space exploded with life and light. As the head of Mike Mason, a rescue diver, suddenly appeared, grinning through his mask, right next to those men. And the little chamber erupted in rapturous joy. Mike Mason had come from that light above. He was a worker on one of the nearby boats that heard the distress call from the original tugboat. And he'd been working now for many hours to find those crewmen and rescue them. Though he carried a very brilliant underwater light in his hand, he dove into depths that were so black with oil that he couldn't see more than a foot in front of his face. He cut through inches of steel plate with a burning torch. He wound his way through treacherous wreckage and debris that could easily have cut him, severed his oxygen line at any moment. All through the journey, the rig was shuddering. At any moment, it could have collapsed further upon itself, sending all of them to the depths and their final death. But Mike was unwilling to give up. He would not give up until he found and brought home every single one of those souls. I want to invite you to imagine that someone would care enough for you to risk themselves, to go to that length to find you. Think about that. Imagine someone doing that at the cost of his own life just to rescue you. If we could see Christmas through angel eyes, what would we see? Well, we would see the rapturous beauty where angels dwell all the time. The first thing we would notice is how indescribably beautiful is the world, the dimension that is the home of the angels. It's a place so spectacularly beautiful that it makes the sunniest day on the most extraordinary waters of this planet look like the worst oil rig disaster in comparison. That's what life here looks like when compared to where the angels live. And the place 
that the angels live, which the Bible calls the kingdom of the heavens, derives its character from the being who occupies its center. God is a being so spectacularly good, so stupendously powerful, so eternally wise and contented that he needs nothing but himself. And the angels who are themselves beings of stunning beauty and intellect and goodness, consider it pure joy just to be near him for a moment. And I imagine the angels drawing nearer to him as as they see him becoming transfixed, as he gazes across time and space and he beholds this tiny little planet hardly a dust speck in the cosmos. And following his gaze, the angels see what has happened out there on that little planet over the eons since he created it. And they see the pain in the eyes of God as he looks upon all of the hatred and the destruction that is commonplace there when once upon a time it was a place of love and creativity. The angels see the sadness in the eyes of God as he looks upon the selfishness and the apathy of people. When long ago, They had loved one another. And they see the agony in his eyes. They see the giant agony in the face of God as he gazes upon the hungry kids and the divided and broken households and the abuse of power and the destruction of the beauty of the world and the lost glory for which he created it, for which he created us. And I imagine the angels watching as God rises up from his cosmic throne. I I imagine them leaning forward as they expect him now to do the justifiable, obvious, efficient thing and just wipe this planet from existence. But I see the surprise in their eyes as they see God taking off the robe of his majesty instead and laying it down. I see the gathering look of shock in the face of the angels as they see God step forward in all of his naked glory to the very edge of heaven itself. And they watch him pause there. They see him pause 
in concentration like a superb athlete before the decisive act of performance, and they see him tense the magnificent sinew of his being, draw in a huge breath that shakes the universe, and flex his knees once, and they know what he's going to do. They understand. They gasp in understanding. He still favors them. He still favors that planet. Those people. He hasn't stopped loving them. The angels marvel. And the angels see what God plans to do. That he is going to become the ultimate diver. He will plunge from the heights of deity all the way down. So far, far, far down. He will plunge himself into the flesh of humanity itself. And suddenly the angels, they see the plan. He is going to become a human baby to one of the poorest families on the planet. He's going to grow up to become a a teacher like no other teacher. And he will walk amongst them. His teaching will cut like a blowtorch through the pride and the prejudice and the stupidity and ignorance of the day. He will wind his way through the twisted wreckage of human relationships and society. It will cost him mightily do this. He will be punished and cut and injured as he finds his way through the maze, blazing a light, looking, searching, trying to find with grace and truth those who are willing to be found. And he will lay his body down, they see. He will lay down on a cross to purchase freedom for those trapped in sin. And in order to show them, once and for all, the magnitude of divine love. And then descending farther still, into the very depths of hell itself. God in Jesus will rise with the light to find those who are lost, and they see that whoever, no matter what their history, their past, their occupation, their age, whoever puts their trust in him, he will take with him one by one and raise them up to the new life and the second chance. This, I think, is what the angels saw. They saw Jesus was God who'd come all the way down. And they saw that the prize for which he dove so deep 
and rose so high was you. The prize was you. And me. Let him rescue us. Let him rescue us. Let him take us up with him from wherever we're trapped, wherever we're caught, stuck, hopeless, sinking, as individuals, as a society. Let God rescue us. Let his redeeming love be the good news of great joy for all people, which the angels still beg us to take in on this holy night. peace and wish someone near you a very Merry Christmas.